Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. WBT. Brett Jensen here with you on this Thursday night edition of Breaking with Brett Jensen. 704-570-1110. As always, that's the telephone number to call the show. And guys, follow me on X at Brett underscore Jensen for all the latest and breaking news in and around the Charlotte area. And if you follow me on X like I tell you to do every single day, then you would have seen about 30 minutes or so, well, 35 minutes or so ago, that I did a preview for tonight's show. And the preview was, as I told you last night, that Mark Harris is going to be sitting in studio with us for the full hour tonight. Uh, he's running for District 8, the congressional seat in District 8. And uh, so, Mark, first of all, thank you for doing this on a Thursday night. We're, you know, and we're, tomorrow is like the big holiday. People start taking off and getting ready. But tonight, people are still working and still do their jobs and just getting everything ready. So I really do appreciate you coming in here as we're getting closer and closer to Christmas. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brad. It's just always an honor to, uh, to be here and be part of the WBT uh, program. So I want to just start off with a couple of things. I know you got um, earlier this week, I want to say it's Monday, if I'm not mistaken, Lieutenant Governor uh, Mark Robinson endorsed you. Is that correct? We did. We were very blessed to get the endorsement of Lieutenant Governor. Uh, actually came last week. Okay. Uh, and um, it's continued to pick up, uh, I guess, momentum as uh, folks have become more and more aware of it. So we're very honored by that. Uh, we certainly are hopeful that he's going to be the next governor of North Carolina. And so uh, I was very, very honored to receive his endorsement for this race. And, you've, and you have received quite a few endorsements so far. We have. We've been very blessed from the time we announced. Um, we uh, picked up several national figures. Uh, Governor Mike Huckabee, probably uh, one of the best-known endorsements we received. Uh, we also received the endorsement of Tony Perkins, who's president of the Family Research Council out of Washington, D.C., and also Ralph Reed, who was the founder of Faith and Freedom, uh, another national organization, and uh, receiving his endorsement. So we've been very, very blessed uh, to have picked up those national figures so early. I remember talking to you in June up in Greensboro at the North Carolina uh, GOP convention. And I know there was, it was all, you know, contingent on what, you know, if Dan Bishop was going to stay, you know, in, in his congressional seat or if he was going to run for attorney general. And there was a lot of speculation. And, and I told you then that your name was the name I kept hearing more than anybody that was going mm -hmm. to, you know, likely run ha if Bishop jumps to attorney general. And I don't know if I asked you this at the time, but you can talk about it more clearly, even if I did. When did you start th truly thinking about, you know what, a another run for Congress might be in the cards? Like, was it the first time that you heard Bishop might be wavering? Because I think I heard about him sometime back in May, maybe, mm. is the first time I heard that about him potentially wavering. When did you really start giving thought to doing this? 
Well, you know, Brett, from the time that everything happened as it did in the uh, 20, not early 2019 and all of the 2018 election that we won, um, you know, the call that had been placed in my life to, to serve and in that capacity uh, never had gone away. Um, I thought it was very clear that um, if, if the time came that uh, it, everything was right, that I would make a decision to possibly run again. I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know when that was going to occur. Uh, folks would oftentimes ask me, well, do you think you'll ever run for office again uh, after we lived through that nightmare? And I said, well, you know, I, I am smart enough to never say never. Uh, so I think you, you take things one day at a time, and you look at situations as they are in front of you, and you have to make decisions based on when those opportunities happen. Uh, when you and I were talking in June, uh, I think it was pure speculation of what Dan Bishop was going to do. And quite frankly, if I remember correctly, I told you, I, I really am not sure he would do this. I said, this is a very safe seat. I, I didn't imagine that he, Dan would feel the need to step away from it at any point in the near future. So it really wasn't on my radar. Um, it started to get on my radar uh, as he and I talked, and then he and I talked further into July, and then he let me know uh, when he had made the decision that he was going to run for attorney general. Um, and we talked about the fact that I had run in this district before, had won this district successfully, fair and square, before the shenanigans of the State Board of Elections. And, um, but I did feel in my heart there were some things that I really needed to, uh, to really think through, pray through, and, and really digest before we made this decision. This was a big decision for me. It's been a big decision for my family. Uh, Beth and I had a lot to, to weigh out here. And I really needed to see some data. You know, that had been something, quite frankly, um, that I had never really done in the past. Whenever I felt led to step into something, I stepped into it. Uh, now I felt like that we had lived through such a nightmare that it was important that I see some data to help me discern whether or not the left had really been successful or not so successful at trying to destroy me because it was clearly the manufactured scandal that overturned an election, uh, which became the subtitle of the book, 13 Ballots, that tells the story. So with all that said, um, you know, there were some things we had to weigh out. We'll get, we'll get into that part. I, I mean, obviously, we'll touch on 2019, and we'll get into that maybe a little bit later. But this particular race, I, I think you were the first person, if not the first, maybe the second person. I can't remember if Balkan was the first officially announced, but I think you may have been the first person to officially announce running in that district. And it is uh, quite the cornucopia of people. You've got a minister, a farmer, a lawyer, a North Carolina representative, a realtor, and a former Dan Bishop aide. I, you're all over the place in there, all <laughs> over the place for the people. What do you think about your opponents right now? I mean, well, not individually, but just as a collective group when you look at them. Well, I think anybody who feels led to get into a race ought to feel free to get into that race. And I'm sure every single one of them has a reason to run and is choosing to do so. And I certainly respect them for what they've done. I do feel like that I am the candidate that comes to the table most prepared to step in there. I tell folks, listen, I'm the only candidate out of the six that's actually been through new member orientation to the United States House of Representatives. I was elected in 2018, and every single county that canvassed elected me. 
I went immediately to uh, new member orientation in Washington, went through the two weeks of orientation before all of this nightmare began that we went through. So I'm ready on day one to step into the U.S. House of Representatives and serve. And, um, you know, that call to serve, as I said earlier, has not left. Do you think you're owed that particular because of what happened in 2018, 2019? No, I don't. I don't think the people or the voters owe me anything. Uh, I feel I have to earn their support. I feel like I have to earn this seat all over again. I do feel like that the very issues I ran on in 2018 have only become magnified um, because they've gotten so much worse. None of us dreamed, I don't think I fully dreamed, that in three years that the Biden administration would be able to undo and put us in the path of destruction that we have found ourselves facing today. And so the issues that I was prepared for in 2018 are only magnified today, and I feel like that we, uh, we're ready to step in and fight. When we come back, let's get into a little bit about the 2018-2019 election there against Dan McCready, and we'll also get into some of the things going on in the world of politics that if you know you are elected, you're going to have to be at the front and center of, whether it's foreign aid to Ukraine or the situation going on with Russia and China and just everything else outside of the borders here in America, plus the actual border going on down there in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. So we'll get into all that when we come back. He's Mark Harris. I'm Brett Jensen, and you're listening to Breaking with Brett Jensen. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Welcome back to Breaking with Brett Jensen. Mark Harris is sitting alongside me. We're going up until 8 o'clock tonight, 704-570-1110. And guys, follow me on X at Brett underscore Jensen, as I always tell you. Okay, so let's, let's dive a little bit into the issues. Because by and large, Republicans, for the most part, tend to think the same way. There might be little differences here or there. Um, on certain topics, but what are your thoughts? Let's you know some of the national stuff that's been out there for a long time. What are your thoughts about providing aid and weapons to Ukraine? You know, my position when everything started in Ukraine, I think all of us understood that that we had a lot at stake there, and we needed to be very engaged. And I think that we began to get engaged, but. Again, just like other things this administration has done with their foreign policy, I think it began to fall apart very quickly till we reached a point that we were sending billions upon billions of dollars over there with very little, if any, accountability. And that's where I think we've seen everything begin to collapse in terms of the overall support uh, for, for continuing to send money without accountability. And I think that is the position, ultimately, where most Americans have reached when we look at all of the issues that are happening right now today, from our own border uh, to our out-of-control spending to everything else, we cannot continue to send money, especially unaccounted for, over to Ukraine. So there's got to be some corrections made. So I, I cannot 
continue to support or would not support a continued blank check to sending money over there. What about, you know, because I was over there the year before the war, before the invasion, and then went in there for eight days to do something with Samaritan's Purse. Correct. Um, and talked to a lot of people and went to the towards the front lines and all that and saw the mm-hmm. bombed out villages. What are your thoughts on, with, even without the money, because like, Ukrainians will say, the, it's the government asking for the money. The Ukrainians aren't seeing it. Right. But That's what, the problem. What all they're asking for are the bullets and the guns. Right. Would you have a problem giving them the ammunition and the weapons if it didn't come attached to all those millions and billions of dollars? No, I think I think the ammunition and the weapons are important. In fact, I think that's the problem with this whole administration's foreign policy. Remember, these are the people that uh, came from Obama's famous line, leading from behind. If we're going to get into a war, you get in to win. If you're going to get into a battle, you get in to succeed. You don't just play this you know, excuse the language, half-ass approach to trying to fight a battle. And so I think that this foreign policy of this administration is just demonstrating that over and over and over again. And so, again, I, I do feel like that when you look at what's happening at Ukraine, we cannot continue to send money over there. To your point that you made, that money is not getting to meet the needs of the people uh, that's needed. Thank God for Samaritan's Purse and others that are over there and have been making a difference. What's the biggest outside force that's the biggest threat to America? It was the, This was the question that was asked during the a Trump-Biden debate. Is it Russia or is it China? Who's a bigger threat to America? Oh, I think no question right now, China uh, would certainly be that biggest threat. Um, one, I mean, it was just this week. New, I think Newsweek broke the report that she warned Biden in a in a meeting that was held in private, I guess, there in San Francisco, that uh, they had intentions and plans that they were going to take Taiwan and uh, made no bones about it and uh, seemed to inform the president that maybe what he was hearing from his military advisors were wrong in terms of the timing that it was going to happen. But um, that, that release of information, again, just continues to show how weak of a foreign leader, international leader, we are now in the foreign policy front. So I, I think that um, there's a lot of, lot of needs that are there. Uh, and I would, to answer your question in short, I would say China right now is our biggest threat. Let's look back domestically now. We know the situation going on with the border. Some 265,000 people every month are crossing the border and have been for three straight years. Correct. Um, so we're well over 6 million people that have crossed and come into the country since then, since Biden took over in 2021. But even more micro into your district, specifically District 8, what's the biggest concerns or issues that you could actually have a direct impact on in Washington? Education, stuff like that, that's more of a local level. What kind of imp- what's the biggest issues facing your district that you can have a direct impact on in Washington? Well, I think there's a lot of these things, and I, I, don't, I don't think people need to discount the fact that what's going on at the southern border right now is having a direct impact on District 8. It's having a direct impact on every state in the country. Uh, that's the reason you have governors that are so angry and so um, 
coming up with their own plans of how they're going to deal with these issues because these folks that are continuing to be brought into our country are draining so much of the resources that, that we have. And right now, until we get a handle on the southern border, and that has to be people standing together, Republicans being united, and Democrats, they're Democrats that are beginning to recognize this really is a problem that is, yeah, that's got to be dealt with. And, and we see the drugs being brought across, the human trafficking that's being brought across, all of these kind of things are affecting all of the counties that make up the 8th District of North Carolina, uh, just like they are states across the country. So I, I think the southern border is a larger issue that, and that all voters in this district and throughout the country have got to be aware of and, and get engaged in. Are there differences between the needs from 2018 to 2023, 2024 for that district? I think um, I think primarily the needs are worse. I think we've got uh, a rise in crime that we look at nationally, and I think we probably see that happening also in this particular uh, district as well throughout the counties. I think when you look at the issue of uh, life, there, you're going to find differences in our uh, candidates that are in this primary on just how we view the pro-life issue. Um, the Republicans do have differences in that, as you are well aware, and I think that's going to become clear. So I think there are things that we have stood for in the 2018 election. Securing the border was something we emphasized then. We wanted the wall to be built. We were standing with President Trump and wanting to build that wall. I think the whole tax issue is something that we're going to have to deal with. We have a, the sunset coming on the Trump tax cuts that are going to affect us in this next Congress that we're going to have to deal with uh, very readily, or everybody's taxes are going to go up. Um, the whole inflation issue that we're dealing with was spending out of control. You know, back in 2018, we were running on the fact that we had a $22 trillion, $21, $22 trillion debt. We're now looking at $33.8 trillion as of today. We're looking at $21 trillion in the rearview mirror. If we don't do something to attack spending, and I don't mean nickel and dime cuts here and there. There are whole departments in Washington that have got to be just dissolved and, and no longer funded. And, and then you could, there's a number of issues like that that I think we're going to have to address. You brought up the abortion thing real quick, and I'm curious – 20 weeks, 12 weeks, six weeks, or abortion ban period. What's your thoughts on that? Where do you stand? Well, my position from the beginning is I believe life begins at conception. So I certainly was hopeful that our General Assembly would pass in North Carolina a heartbeat bill. Uh, many Republicans felt that. Uh, they didn't feel like they had the votes to get the heartbeat bill, and so they went with a 12-week. I feel like the 12 week was an important step that we were able to take, not one that I'm satisfied with. And I think many other Republicans in North Carolina are not satisfied with that and hope that we will eventually get to a six week uh, heartbeat bill. Um, anything, I've often said this, any opportunity that I have to vote on a bill that will simply preserve more life of the unborn child, I'm going to support that bill. 
And I think that's ultimately where I would find myself. So I, I do believe right now that the fact that we have a 12-week was a step in the right direction, but I support a heartbeat bill um, here in North Carolina. If I Obviously, I'm not in running for the state legislature. That's a decision they'll have to make. Um, often would be asked, do I believe there's a role in the federal government? Yeah, I do think at this point there is a bill that was introduced by Lindsey Graham, uh, a 15-week bill. I think at this point, if we can at least set a a ground level to where none of these states that are looking at going all the way through the ninth month um, set a limit on those, I would support that in Congress. When we come back, let's take a look back at 2018 and 20, excuse me, 2018 and 2019 during his race against Dan McCready, which he won. And then it was a whole trial, and I'd been at WPT for about four months and wound up having to cover that and didn't know what the world was going on. It's like, what have I gotten myself into up here as a, being, being a news reporter? So we'll, the same thing myself. <laughs> Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Welcome back to Breaking with Brett Jensen. Mark Harris is in studio with me. We are going up until 8 o'clock, live and in living color, right here in the studio at WBT at 1 Julian Price Place. We've touched a lot of different things so far. So let's go back to 2018. And that was the race where you beat Dan McCready and then District 9, but is essentially what is District 8 now. Mm-hmm. You beat Dan McCready in a very hard-fought, tight, tight race. And then all of a sudden, some questions started showing up about McCray Dallas, who worked for you, and ballot harvesting and all that stuff going on in Bladen County. And Joshua Malcolm, there were questions about him, and he was at the State Board of Elections at the time. And then they decided to have a hearing into the situation. Somebody asked me today, did you ever think about basically saying to the North Carolina Board of Elections and everyone else, hey, I've been elected, I'm going to Washington. Good luck with that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we had thought, but I'll be honest with you, Brett. When, when the whole situation happened, it was, it was such a surprise. I mean, it came literally out of nowhere. All... Eight, there were eight counties in the district at that time. All eight counties had canvassed. All eight counties had certified. All eight counties had done their due diligence, and everything had gone to the State Board of Elections. And they were then to do, as the statute described, their ministerial duty, which was to simply approve and give their final certification to those things. So... When we were up there in orientation, um, I was in, into the second week of orientation. We'd already been through the first week. We'd come home for Thanksgiving. We were up there for the second week, and this was on Tuesday. Um, that was 10 o'clock in the morning. It was later that afternoon, like at 3 or 4 o'clock, before I basically got word. And by the way, to this day, never did I receive a phone call from the State Board of Elections to tell me that this was going to take place. I simply found out, 
from my son who had simply seen a article and he he said he told me if you'd gone and looked on the website at 9:45 that morning I was on the list of every other candidate that was to be certified for their election that day and so it just it literally was a behind the back uh, shot that was taken that nobody ever saw coming and so even the folks in DC were saying look this is this is just somebody wanting a moment in the spotlight. Don't worry about it. It's all going to come out fine. Um, it's all good. It's going to be fine. They came out. They said they were going to wait until Friday. They were going to meet again on Friday to and withheld my certification. But on Friday, they would be able to meet and, and it would be settled by then. And I was told by some of our closest advisors up there, this is not going to be a big deal. It'll be sorted out. And come Friday, it'll all be straightened out. Well, we remained up there. That was mistake number one. I should have left Washington that day, left orientation, and come back and got involved on the ground. But again, we were being told it was just something that will work itself out. So even when things turned as they began to turn, I knew we had done nothing wrong. We had done nothing illegal. I knew of nothing that had taken place that I felt like would jeopardize uh, my win. Uh, so, you know, we continued up through orientation all the way through Friday. Orientation ended that Friday night. We came home that evening on Saturday. We had events. We had parades and everything else that we were participating in for that district. And even as the days continued on and they had decided on that Friday that we're going to have an evidentiary hearing and they first said it would happen on December 11th and then they pushed it back from December 11th to December 21st and then they pushed it back from December 21st to January uh, 6th, I think, that was going to be past uh, the swearing-in date of the 3rd. Even in all of that, call it naivete, call it whatever you want to, I just believed Surely it will get sorted out. I believed in the process enough. Was I dead wrong? You better believe it. I, I do not believe in the processes of government to the extent now that I had faith at that point. It, it, became, it brought me to become very cynical in many ways of, of those that I had trusted to be in those leadership positions. You just said that, you know, you are unaware of anything or, you know, anything that you got your campaign and didn't do anything illegal and all that. Did you make any mistakes during that campaign? Did you make any mistakes with the people that you hired or the way your campaign went about things? Were there mistakes made? I would say in looking back, obviously, knowing what all we know now, um, yes, I, we, we've owned that. In fact, if you even jump to the, the point of the hearing when I said, look, based on the information that's been given, if it's needed, uh, it may be needed that there be a new election in order to restore the confidence in the voters of the 9th District. Again, having faith even then that maybe this was all the information that had been put out but then finding out months later, it was not. Finding out that there were text messages going on between Josh Malcolm and Dan McCready. Finding out that there were phone calls going on. 
finding out that there were emails being shot back and forth, all these kind of things that we couldn't know, didn't know, and finding out even probably less than a month later that the Board of Elections said that every ballot was accounted for. We knew that there weren't enough ballots in question to change the outcome of the election. Was, that it, thir- had, was it 13 ballots? Is that what it was? Well, there, the ballots in question were, at the end of the day, and my, that 13 ballot figure you're getting were based on the McCray Dallas, who was at the center of the situation, he was charged mm-hmm. with taking possession or mishandling 13 ballots over three elections. Mm-hmm. Okay. In my election that was overturned by the state board, the ballots were two, that he was actually charged with taking possession of two ballots. And so for those two ballots, 282,000 voters' votes were thrown out by a decision of the state board. And not all the information had been put out to the public at that point of what all we would know. What has been uncovered since then has certainly shed new light on it for me that, that again, it was the whole process was a huge manufactured scandal. The, I believe the quote was, I believe a new election should be called. It became clear to me that public confidence in the 9th District has become undermined to an extent that a new election is warranted. And for the, basically, that was your direct quote talking about how a new election should be doing, again, just to get, regain the trust of the people. Based on based, what, right. the evidence we had at, heard at, the at the time, that hearing. At the time. At the time. That's exactly right. That was from the hearing at that moment uh, in early 2019. So with that being said, why should voters trust you this time? Well, they should trust me this time because, again, we now know, again, that I should have been seated in 2018. I mean, it was a year and a half later that a Democrat district attorney in Wake County actually put out a statement that there was not evidence that would lead to any charges against Mark Harris in that situation. And here's the direct quote. Okay. Our office has concluded that there is not enough evidence which would support a criminal case against Dr. Harris. That was the direct quote. There you go. So, again, it goes back to process. If the State Board of Elections had done what they should have done, and we point this out in the book, they would have taken their evidence, they would have turned it over to law enforcement, who really were the professionals at doing investigations and the professionals at bringing criminal charges. If there was anything done wrong, charges would have been brought, trials would have been held, people would have been convicted. And if there were no charges to be brought, I would have continued to serve, obviously, in the U.S. House and been running for re-election in 2020. Um, So, again, that was not the process followed. The State Board of Elections became the administrative state It was the first real clear indication of the weaponization of an agency for political purposes. It was the tip of the spear, Brett. Well, that was the first time I remember in that up there that week, covering that hearing in Raleigh that week, what, February of 2019, I believe it was, um, whatever the hearing was, January. February 2019. Yep. It was the first time Mark Elias and I, I met him. Mm. I'd never heard of him, but it was also right around the whole Russiagate thing, and you found out. His law firm that he was a part of was all part of that Trump-Russiagate thing. And he and I got into 
multiple arguments up there <laughs> um, because he refused to answer a question. Because I thought about, I, and I remember asking you this at the time, and I, I sincerely doubt you'll remember this, but I remember asking you if you have had thought about suing because of what had happened, and because there was all that mess with Joshua Malcolm, and. But you at the time didn't have the funds because you were supporting your own lawyers in legal actions. That's and because I asked you, I said, who's paying for your lawyer? And you said, I am. That's correct. And uh, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe somebody told me that you even took out like a second mortgage on your house or something like that to help pay for it. And then when I asked Mark Elias the exact same question, who's paying for your services here? He refused to answer. Absolutely. And I said, well, I know it's not Dan McCready because you get paid about $800 an hour. That's right. And I said, so I know it's not him. I said, is it the Democrat party up in Washington? Or is it the North Carolina Democrat party that's paying you? Or is it an outside pact that's paying? Like, who's paying you? I was told point blank that Mark Elias does not come in to a little house seat to try to steal an election unless he has been ordered there by the Podesta brothers and the DCCC. And the man that represented the Hillary Clinton for president campaign, the, the one that was at the heartbeat of the Trump dossier, the one that helped create all of that, would not be there if he were not under the direction of the DCCC. Now, to be honest with you, I, I find it fascinating that they saw me as such a threat uh, to them, that they would want to wrangle this away from me uh, in, in I'm curious, 2018. What do you think that is? Uh, that, that's a great point. I've never thought about that. Why do you think they singled you out? That's a great question. And it, and it may very well have been. I mean, I, there's a lot of things you could speculate. I'm not going to say tonight of, of what that speculation might have been. But for whatever reason, you don't see Mark Elias going into races like this and in just this ninth District as he did in 2018, uh, in the role in 2019. He's involved in Senate seats and things like that that he'll get involved with. But in a lot of ways, people thought, I had several tell me this was a trial balloon in 2018, and Mark Elias was involved because they wanted to see what they could do within the State Board of Elections in North Carolina in preparation for 2020. Well, we know how that went. And, and listen, many anticipated that North Carolina would turn out to be the Georgia of 2020. What happened in Georgia they thought may very well be what would happen in North Carolina. And so this was the trial balloon for what they could be able to get away with. Either way, I want to be clear. I'm not in this election to relitigate 2018. I own the fact um, that, that, you know, there, the mistakes were made. I, I obviously, knowing what I know now, I would have probably listened to my son. Knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't have hired uh, McCray Dallas, although I say that, Brett, but at the same time, I have to be transparent. The man was never given his day in court. For three years, he maintained his innocence, and they never, ever took him to court. A trial for McCray Dallas was the only opportunity I felt like I was going to have to get to the bottom of what actually happened, and they never gave him that day. In 30 seconds. Do you think the uh, do you think your opponents will bring this up? Well, it's certainly their prerogative to do so if they want to do so. I will say this: we did polling ourselves before we got into this race. 
um, to get a feel. And I think as I talk to people across this district, I rarely ever run across a Republican who believes uh, anything different than the fact that I was ripped off in the 2018 election. So I think everybody recognizes in light of 2020 and in light of what we've seen happen with the Justice Department, in light of what we've seen with the administrative state and the lengths Democrats will go to to try to steal an election, I think that if you want to make this the issue, here we are. We'll go down that road. But I think Republicans will stand and know the truth is the truth. When we come back, we'll only have a few minutes left because we went way, way along this segment. But when we come back, we'll only have a few minutes left and we'll get some final thoughts from Mark Harris. I'm Brett Jensen and you're listening to Breaking with Brett Jensen. Welcome back to Breaking with Brett Jensen. Mark Harris is sitting alongside me. We have about oh, four more minutes or so. So, Mark, first of all, I really do appreciate you doing this tonight again on a Thursday night as we're creeping towards Christmas and everything. And I'm sure there's a lot of other things you'd rather be doing than having to sit next to me for an hour. So I appreciate that. Um, let's talk about the district real quick and some of the candidates going on. You've got some people that are probably going to have a lot of money behind them. Lee Brown's going to probably have a lot of money coming in from like real estate associations. You've got John Bradford, who's already said he's putting $2 million of his own pocket money in his own uh, into his campaign. You've got Alan Balkum, the farmer who's worth a lot of money and basically owns all of Union County land wise. He's putting a lot of money into his campaign. Where's your money coming from? How much are you putting in of your own money into your campaign, first of all? And then where are your donors coming from? Well, we are uh, we're still putting money into our campaign. And, and I don't know that we've settled on a final amount that we're going to put in at the end of the first quarter. Uh, we had personally uh, put $25,000 in and, and we're going to we're going to do more as we are able to do more. But I honestly, Brett, I can't obviously compete in people that put a quarter of a million, half million or two million dollars in. But what we've always run our race on is the message and the character. I've told people time and again that what we need in leadership in Washington, D.C. is we need leaders with character and to act with consistency and act with courage. And that message is a winning message. Uh, character, consistency, and courage. In 2018, I was outspent. I was running against a three-term incumbent in the uh, primary, and we were outspent three to one. We had done the best we could, rubbing all the nickels together. We'd raised $500,000. A three-term incumbent uh, spent $1.5 million in that race, and we won in that primary. In the general election against Dan McCready, we worked, and our committee raised an additional $2 million, which allowed us to be at $2.5 million for that general election. Some outside conservative groups matched that to get to five. McCready spent $11 million in that race for that U.S. House seat, and we beat him on election night by 1,860, and then eventually by 905 after they finished counting all the provisional ballots. I'm curious. The, uh, I'm sorry to mean no, sir, because we've only got about 90 seconds left. I'm, okay. Most people can believe that it's going to come down to you and John Bradford. What are your thoughts on John Bradford? I think John Bradford has a record. I think John Bradford uh, followed Tom Tillis in the North Carolina House of Representatives. I think he has a record that will speak clearly 
that he is not the type of Republican that will represent the 8th District of North Carolina. What separates the two of you? I think if you look at his support of Medicaid expansion and bringing Obamacare right into the heart of North Carolina, uh, most Republicans in this district will be opposed to that. I think when you look at the issue of abortion, he's quoted as saying that he thinks the 20 weeks is perfectly uh, legitimate and didn't really need to be restricted. Now, he went along with the caucus and supported the 12-week. I don't think he would ever go any further than that. I think that is a definite difference. And I think when you really look at his ties to Tom Tillis and the stands that Tillis has taken in the United States Senate as of date, there's going to be some stark differences drawn. Mark Harris, I can't, again, thank you enough for actually coming in here for a full hour. And hopefully we'll be seeing you again on this station in about a month, about a month or so, a month and a half from now. I can't say anything on air, but just hopefully we'll see you again in about a month and a half ago. But seriously, thank you so much for coming in tonight. Thank you, Brett, for uh, having me. All right, everyone, this will do it for tonight. If you missed any part, go to WBT.com. You can hear the entire interview right there. Until tomorrow, I'm Brett Jensen. You've been listening to Breaking with Brett Jensen.